0: have a a Bible with you, would you turn with me to uh, John chapter 3? And if you're using uh, one of our red Bibles from the seat pocket in front of you, John chapter 3 is on page 518. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series that we've titled, From Death to Life. Uh, and, And in this series, we're looking at the, um, the many different ways in which we see pictures of or motifs of God's salvation to us, um, the different ways in which he is working in our lives to bring us from death to life. And uh, we've looked at a number of these things, and I-, I wanted to draw your attention to, in one of Paul's letters to Titus, he says this. For, he's talking about how Um, We were previously, as Christians, we were previously living in, in disobedience, we were once foolish, we were led astray, we were enslaved to various passions and pleasures, but then he says this, but then when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that this story of going from death to life includes this idea of regeneration, this giving of a new life from God to us. That's what we're going to look at today from John chapter 3, this idea of regeneration, which semantically just means this, to be born again. To to come into a new life. And so that's what we're talking about. John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in this word, we are appointed to your Son, Jesus in whom we have salvation, in whom we go from death to life. And so we pray now in your spirit, would you open up your word to our hearts that we would see your glory and respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Being born again, that's such a buzzword in Christianity. Um, People identify as being born-again Christians. People ask one another, have you been born again? It's this buzzword, and uh, it comes oftentimes with some cultural baggage. But when Jesus said, you have to be born again, he didn't speak of that phrase with all of the baggage that comes with that word today. And so as we approach this passage, let's try uh, to sort of clear our minds of whatever image or thought we have about what does it mean to be born again and any of the cultural elements that are associated with that because jesus didn't have that specifically in mind when he talks to nicodemus so instead let's ask these basic questions about being born again let's ask who needs it like who needs to be born again let's ask what does it do to us And then finally, how do we get it? So who needs it? What does it do to us? And how do we get it? First, who needs to be born again? Our story begins with this man, Nicodemus, and he's coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, probably under cover of darkness, because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, John tells us. He's a member of the ruling class of the Jews which means he's, uh, he's a, a religious elite. He's gone to school. He's studied. He's lived a life of character and integrity. He's, he's well thought of by his community. And so he's been installed as a member of this board of elders called the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin shows up later in the story of Jesus. They're the people who go and arrest Jesus They're the people that put Jesus on trial. They find him um, guilty of blasphemy, and then they sentence him to death. That's the Sanhedrin that Nicodemus is a part of. And so think religious elite. And he's coming under the cover of darkness because the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin do not like Jesus. But Nicodemus, he's at least open to who this Jesus guy might be. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and Nicodemus has probably heard about who this man is, and so he's going in secrecy to find out more information. He even calls him rabbi, teacher, a word of respect, a title of recognition. And he says, rabbi, I know that you are a teacher sent by God, because no one can do these things that you do if not with God's presence with him. He understands that there's something unique about Jesus. He he sees something in Jesus that's different. And yet Jesus responds and says, Nicodemus, you might think you know what you see, but you can't really see me. Because he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wants to know about Jesus He wants to see Jesus, and Jesus says you can't see the truth unless you're born again. You can't see the kingdom of God. And so the answer to our question, who needs to be born again? Anyone that wants to see the truth, to see the kingdom of God, has to be born again. And for Nicodemus and his countrymen and his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith, to, to see the kingdom of God, when, whenever the reference is to kingdom of God, it's this idea that at the end of time, when everything is all said and done, that there will be a day in which God will visit everyone. He will come down from heaven with judgment, and the nations will come before him, and the people of the nations will come before him, and their hearts will be laid bare, and he will execute Judgment. And the idea is that if if God sees in you faithfulness and righteousness and obedience to God's law, well, then you will be ushered into the kingdom. But if he finds in you wickedness or disobedience or unfaithfulness and turning away from the Lord, he will turn you away from him. For a Pharisee, for Nicodemus, and maybe for people today, The idea of this future judgment and then an afterlife was so prevalent that you live your life in such a way now so that at the end of time, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And in this idea, the kingdom of God for for Nicodemus, it was built upon this idea um, looking back in history to the time of King David. King David was the great king of Israel who ruled with justice and righteousness over a united kingdom. It was the time of glory and justice where there was flourishing and abundance of harvest and life. And although King David was a sinner and his reign was not perfect, we know that God still chose him to be his representative as this king. And he promised to King David that although you will leave your throne and you will die one day, I promise you that I will raise up a king in your place. One of your own sons will sit on your throne and rule forever in my kingdom. And so for Nicodemus to hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, immediately he's thinking of one day in the future, God is going to restore everything. He's going to come in judgment. He's going to get rid of all wickedness and evil. He's going to welcome all those who are righteous to live in his kingdom of glory and righteousness and justice. Where there will be no fear. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no death or mourning. But there will be life and righteousness and justice for all people. Is this longing that everyone we all feel it? Every time we turn on the news and we see a story or or, or read something of, of evil and oppression and, and and hurt and death, we we long for the kingdom of God. Because we know that this world is just broken. We long for the kingdom of God. What's interesting about looking at this future kingdom is that when Jesus talks about this kingdom of God, he actually, well, in, God, in the gospel of Matthew, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus talks about this future kingdom, he talks about it using the words new creation or new world and, and that word new world in the Greek means new life, palingenesis, life again, world again. And it's the exact same word that Paul uses in, our, in that Titus letter I just read at the opening, regeneration. So when Jesus thinks about the kingdom of God, he has in mind this image of everything being recreated. Reborn, new life. And Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in the kingdom of God in the future, if you want to participate in the restoration of all things, if you want to participate in the life of glory, if you want to be a part of that reborn world, well, you have to be reborn yourself. You have to be regenerated yourself if you're going to participate in the regeneration of the world. This is fascinating. It was mind-blowing for Nicodemus, who always thought that, I will not enter into that new world until the end of time. Jesus says, no, you can participate in that new world now. You can be reborn now and begin to live in that future kingdom. It's like God is bringing the future reality into a present experience. You can begin to experience the life of glory now by being born again. So, who needs it? Anyone who is hurting and longs for healing. Anyone who is weary in this world and longing for rest. Anyone who is enslaved to sin and desires liberation. Anyone that looks at this present world and says, this is not right. They need to be reborn because when we are reborn we begin to participate in that future kingdom of God now so that's who needs to be reborn anyone that wants to participate in that future kingdom today second what does it do to us you know what what does this new birth actually do within us what does it enable us to do? What does it look like? And, and this illustration that Jesus is using is so um, so vivid to be born again. I mean it, it is just Nicodemus demonstrates the, the vividness of it when he asks, like, how is that possible?" How can a grown man enter again into uh, his mother's womb? It, it, it's so vivid. And, and Jesus uses this illustration to get at the heart of what this does to us. Because when a child is born, like there is this very clear distinction between a child who's not yet born and a child who is born. I mean, for, for many months, that child is not yet born. And then there comes a moment where everything changes and there's this new life. And now the child's born. Jesus is getting us to see that there is this distinct difference between the life of someone who hasn't yet been reborn and someone who has been reborn. This, I mean, The same except to a hundred degrees more between someone who physically has not yet been born and someone who has been born. It's this distinct difference. That's why Paul can talk about... Um, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. It's this distinct difference. He says, the old is done away with. It's passed on. Behold, the new has come. So what does this new birth do to us? It, it, it changes us. It's this distinct change. And he, he continues. Jesus says, you know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying that if you are born of the Spirit. If you have new creation life in the Spirit, you're going to now look like and live in accordance with that birth. He's saying, if if you've been born in the flesh, well, your life is going to look like you've been born with the flesh. But if you've been born by the Spirit, your life's going to look different. Your life is going to look like the Spirit. You're going to live in accordance with or in alignment with the things of the Spirit. He's kind of, this is an analogy, but he's kind of talking about like you're going to produce the fruit of life that that is associated with who you are. Like, think of an apple tree. We've got one in our front yard, and it, the eight apples that it produced this past year all rotted, so we never got to taste them. Um, but I know that it's an apple tree, and this summer I can expect that that tree is going to grow apples. It would freak me out if come May, that tree produces oranges. Because it's not an orange tree. It's an apple tree. Down the road, we have a pear tree. And that pear tree is only going to produce pears, not apples. Jesus is saying, look, if you are of the flesh, you're going to live in accordance with the flesh. But if you've been born from the Spirit, you're going to produce fruit in accordance with the Spirit. And and the... The order of things is really important for us to see. We don't bear fruit of the Spirit in order to become a tree of the Spirit. You know, like a, we don't bear fruit of an apple in order to be changed into an apple tree. No, we are an apple tree, and so we bear apples. We are born of the Spirit, and so we produce a life of I think too often when we talk about born again experiences or born again Christianity, we focus so much on like your behavior. What does your life look like? What things do you do? What things do you not do? What movies do you see? You know, what music do you listen to? What CDs are you burning? At least, and that's how we talked about being born again at least a generation ago. We focus on the fruit of life. But Jesus is saying, no, like, don't focus on the fruit of life, focus on the root of your life. Because it's out of the root of your life that you'll produce the fruit of your life. To be born again is this distinct, radical change that takes place at the root of your being. And he gets further into this idea that this change happens at the root when he clarifies what he means by being born again in verse 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. Some People might say that to be born of the water and spirit is a reference to baptism. You have to be baptized to enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, it makes sense. In baptism, we use water and we symbolize the spirit of God being poured out on someone. And so Christian baptism does point to this new life that we're buried with Christ and raised to new life. But Jesus isn't talking about something that will come into being in the, in the future of the church. He's actually talking about something that he assumes Nicodemus understands. He, he says, aren't you not a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand what I'm saying? He expects Nicodemus to know what it means to be born of water and spirit. We have to look at the Old Testament. We have to look at the history of Israel to understand what Jesus is saying. And I'm glad that I chose this for our assurance of forgiveness, but he's talking about Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen again to what we read earlier from Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is saying, this born again experience is this gracious gift from God in which he comes to the heart of our being, the root of our being, our very heart. He sprinkles us with water to cleanse us, cleanse us from our sin, our impurities, And he gives us a heart of flesh, a new heart. So what does being born again do to us? It transforms us radically from the heart. It cleanses our heart. It purifies our heart. And then it enables us to live out of our heart. This transformation looks like it's these two things. Being born again changes our love's And our lives, our loves in the sense that we no longer desire the things that are bad for us. At least this is part of the the effect of this new birth we have. That our hearts are no longer um, stained with sin. We used to desire things that were not good for us, that were not worshipful to the Lord. We desired things that would distract us from the truth. But this gift from God, it cleanses our hearts. It reorients what our desires are, what our loves are. And so we begin to love the things that the Lord wants us to love. We, we begin to love um, his word and fellowship with his people. We begin to um, parent and, and interact with our spouses in a way that is loving and pointing them to God. It means that we begin to be more patient and gracious as we interact with our coworkers and our neighbors it means that we focus our heart's greatest desire on god that's so what cleanses our heart but then it also enables us to live for him it gives us a new life and and, and not just that we would you know, live our lives for His glory. Although that's that's part of it, but it's it's really at the root of this that what we are living for, what our what our hope is in, what our identity is, is now in God. Uh, that we receive from Him this new identity that says, "I am born of the Spirit. I am a child of God." We have this new identity that is received and not. Achieved. So, this is what the new birth does to us it transforms us, it cleanses our heart, and it enables us to live for Him. So, how do we get it? How do we get this new birth? This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if we look at how Jesus begins his ministry in the other gospels, he says the same thing. In Mark, when he comes on the scene, the first thing that Jesus says is, The time is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's saying the same thing to Nicodemus Behold, the time is here now. The kingdom of God is available to you now. Repent and believe. That's what it means to be born again, to repent and believe in the truth of the gospel. I said last week, we talked about repentance then too. And I said to repent is to let go of the things that you're holding on to and to take hold of Jesus. That was a great illustration, but Jesus gives us an even better illustration of repentance. He even gives us a better description of what does it mean to repent And he gives it to us by way of this illustration from Numbers chapter 21. He's talking about Moses. You might remember the story. Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. And they're traveling in the wilderness, in the desert, on their way to the promised land. And God has given them food. He's given them bread from heaven that comes down every day for them to eat. And he's given them water springing forth from the rocks. And yet, as they're wandering through the wilderness, the Israelites are grumbling, and they are impatient, and, and they do not like what they're doing. They don't like the bread anymore. The water doesn't taste good. They are sick of being in the wilderness, and they grumble. And, and they say to Moses, and they say to God, Man, we had it far better when we were slaves in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here to die? And, and, and God he sends out of punishment for their their grumbling and complaining against God's mercy. He sends as a punishment these venomous snakes. And these snakes come to the people of God and they bite them. And the venom begins to course through their bodies and there are Israelites dying. And then they begin to cry out, Moses, save us. God, save us. And so God tells Moses, take bronze and and fashion a bronze serpent in the likeness of those serpents and, and raise that bronze serpent up on a pole and raise it before them so that if any snake bites the Israelites and they are dying, they can look up to the serpent. And if they see the serpent, they will live. It's this bizarre story, but it's this great gift of grace from God You are dying because of your sin, but I will mercifully save you. Just look to this thing that I have given you. This is repentance, to look away from yourself and look to God's grace. That is repentance. Look away from yourself and look to God's grace. This is what Nicodemus needed to hear. This is what you and I need to hear. Stop looking at yourself. For Nicodemus to be having this conversation, he was confident that when the kingdom of God came, he was confident that he would go into it. He was confident that at the end of his life, he would stand before the judge and God would look at him and see his righteousness that he had done himself. He was confident that God would see his religious duty, his obedience, and that on the basis of those things, he would be welcomed into the kingdom. For Nicodemus to hear that he had to repent, well, maybe occasionally he knew of things to repent of, but for Nicodemus to hear that he had to have a total life transformation would have been unheard of. He was looking to himself, he was looking to his attendance at the synagogue. He was looking to his memorization of the word of God. He was looking to the ways that he's loved his neighbors. He was saying, isn't this proof that I deserve to be in the kingdom? He was looking to himself. Jesus says, take your eyes off yourself and look to the gift of grace Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is going to be lifted up. The Son of Man will be lifted up so that anyone who looks on him, not themselves, will find life. Anyone who looks upon him will be born again and begin to experience that future life now. Anyone who looks upon him will have their sin forgiven, their hearts washed clean, and given a new life. Anyone who looks to him. Friends, this is, this is what is so different about Christianity. Like all the other religions of the world, all the other self-help books that you'll find, all the other you know, 10 steps of life improvement that you can go to, it's all about getting rid of what's bad in your life and, and creating or fostering what's good for you. It's all about getting rid of of selfishness, or, or pride, or, uh, or envy, or, or lust, or hate, and cultivating virtues like love, and justice, and peace, and those are great things, but the difference between everything else in Christianity is this. Christianity says this, not only are we to repent of those wrong things that we do, but we are also to repent of the good things that we do for the wrong reason. Nicodemus has lived a life of doing good things for the wrong reason. Because he thinks that by doing good things, he will be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says you have to repent. Repent, yes, of your sin, but repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your self-complacency. Stop looking to yourself to justify yourself. Look to the cross. And when we turn our gaze away from ourselves and look to the mercy of God, well then, and only then, will we be reborn. Then, and only then, will we be given cleansing of our heart. Then, and only then, will we receive a new life, a transformed heart that produces the fruit of righteousness. Then and only then will we begin to experience the kingdom of God, future made present. That's what it means to be born again, to look to Jesus and live in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that you did look upon us in our state of being, that we were dead in our sins, that our hearts were hard against you, that, Lord, we, like the Israelites, grumble against you. But, Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in that state, but have sent your Son and offered to us this new life in him. We pray, Lord, that we would walk in the truth of what it means to be born again, this new life from Jesus. We do pray, Lord, even this morning that, Lord, if that hasn't ever happened to us, that maybe this morning we would look upon you and your cross afresh. And Lord, that when we gaze upon your son on the cross, that we would, Lord, that we would experience that cleansing and revival that you do promise us. And we thank you for your word, your truth. We, we thank you that it leads us to life. And we pray, Lord, that you would apply this truth to our lives even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.